We directed an hospital to be erected near our city of Dublin for the reception and entertainment of such ancient, maimed and infirm officers and soldiers, to the end that such as have faithfully served or hereafter shall faithfully serve us, our heirs or successors, in the strength and vigour of their youth, may in the weakness and disaster that their old age, wounds or other misfortunes may bring them into, find a comfortable retreat and a competent maintenance therein. The Royal Hospital Kilmainham was built in the 1680s under that charter of Charles II. Its purpose was to provide a rest home for wounded and retired officers and soldiers of the King's Army. But the idea for such a building didn't originate in Ireland. Noel Deschenew of the Office of Public Works. One has to go to Paris for the, the beginning. And the beginning is Les Invalides. At that time, Louis XIV uh, had these armies were rampaging around the continent and he was ending up with uh, soldiers who were a danger to the populace and many of them were old and infirm so he decided that he'd uh, set up a hospice for the uh, pensioners from the army. Meanwhile both Britain and Ireland had been ruled by Cromwell and during that time uh, Charles II was in exile in France. Now with him in exile was James, the Duke of Ormond. This was James Butler of the Kilkenny family. And the Duke of Ormond returned to Ireland in 1660. And he set about straight away to make us uh, a capital city. We've got to remember the Duke of Ormond did a great deal for Dublin. It was he who set up the uh, Phoenix Park. Mm -hmm. He gave us the keys uh, along the Liffey. And uh, he obviously had heard something of Les Invalides in Paris because he set about seeking a charter from Charles II to set up a similar establishment in Dublin. The Duke of Ormond was successful in his task and he immediately appointed an architect to draw up plans for a suitable building. The only architect at that time that we know of, and he's the most famous one of the time, was William Robinson. He was the Surveyor General. Uh, that would be equivalent to state architect. I like to think of him as my predecessor, <laughs> even though it's going back quite a bit. But William Robinson, Robinson uh, set about preparing plans for uh, a hospice, as it really was. Uh, not a hospital in the sense that we know it, uh, now, it's quite obvious that Robinson wasn't influenced by anything he saw in this country. We know that he did travel abroad, uh, and he probably would have seen the plans of uh, Les Invalides, and it's from there that we uh, got the, the plan form of the Royal Hospital. The Duke of Ormond decided to build the rest home at Kilmainham, on a site with a long history of hospitality to travellers. Brian Boru is said to have rested there with his army in 1013, before the Battle of Clontarf. In the 12th century, Strongbow set up a priory on the site for the Knights Templars. 
These were then a very powerful religious group with strong military connections. And when they fell into disrepute, their land and possessions were granted to the Knights of St John of Jerusalem, or the Knights Hospitallers. They ran a hospice on the site until the mid-16th century, when all religious houses were dissolved and the land reverted to the king. The foundation stone for the new building was laid in 1680 by the Duke of Ormond, and the job was finished four years later. Noel Deschnew. It was completed in 1684, and so for two and a half centuries after that, that would be right up to 1927, uh, it did stay as a pensioner's home for old soldiers, as they were, ancient or maimed. What we're looking at now is basically what was there in uh, shape and form in 1684. Um, so, so it ran until uh, 1927, when the uh, last pensioner moved out of uh, Kilmainham and uh, he moved to, to Chelsea. Um, in '31, it was taken over by the Irish government and it became then uh, the seat for some time of the guard administration. Uh, then it became a museum store. Uh, so then it went until 1979, when the great proposal came that uh, it was felt Dublin Castle would no longer be suitable for uh, the EEC conferences with the increase in the EEC. Mm-hmm. So it was decided to uh, make Kilmainham the centre for an EEC conference centre. Now, the, this gave the Office of Public Works great opportunity to restore the building. That was stage one. Stage two would have been the uh, development of a conference centre which was going to take place well away from the building and not uh, obstructing it in any way or conflicting with it. But uh, due to the recession, this has fallen through. But it's always there as a possibility in the future. In the 1970s, the staff of the Office of Public Works was already fully stretched on a number of major projects, including the concert hall. So outside consultants were brought in to advise on the restoration. With hindsight now, it's great to think that we picked probably the best man available, John Costello, of a firm of uh, Costello, Mariam Beaumont, architects. Uh, John Costello is an extraordinary person because what he did was he steeped himself in research of the whole history of Kilmainham. He went back to the old records, which are all kept here in the State Record Office, of everything that went on in the hospital. You can see what the laundry cost, what poor old pensioners got per day. He went and steeped himself in all of this. But not only that, uh, when he went on to do the actual work, Uh, His sincerity and commitment to the whole thing seemed to uh, engender itself right through the whole building team, and you'll find it in talking to uh, some of the craftsmen, Mm -hmm. that he uh, almost gave them a a will to try and get as close to perfection of what was there before. What the Office of Public Works did at that time was to set out the parameters of... uh, what was to be done, anything that could be, 
was to be restored and anything that couldn't be was to be repaired. They were the limitations and uh, they were followed through uh, very much by John. Our job was to uh, take it down, examine, uh, reassemble and of course we were the whole time concerned with the idea of uh, carefully repairing and putting back as very much uh, as much as was practicable of the old materials because we felt that materials were the, really the essence of the building and are often the the whole uh, soul of the thing i think you diminish a building if you uh, uh, reject any of its building materials uh, so in that sense uh, the job here was really one of very extensive repair, recycling, and careful reassembly. So, was that very different from designing a new building? John Costello again. Yes, it is different from designing a new building in the sense that, well, clearly you have a building in existence, so it makes it that much easier, not in the sense particularly a creative task, but it's an exacting task and an extremely interesting one in the sense that you do have to get to know the building. You have to get to know it in all its aspects, both technically, physically, and in the case of a place like Kilmainham, uh, historically and socially, you get to the feel of the building. Obviously, here in Kilmainham, uh, this was quite easy because it was such a, one, such a lovely place, and two, since it had such an interesting human history. This was particularly uh, noticeable to us when we had the good fortune to read the records. They're an interesting account, almost a day-to-day -day account of the attempts of a large institution to keep a large building going. And they describe the various episodes and events concerned with maintenance, even building costs dating back to the 1600s. And also, of course, uh, as you read these things from the technical end, you're in some way uh, drawn into the spirit of the place, uh, learning such uh, small day-to-day -day matters as, for example, the, the there was a little dispute, a miniature rebellion by the old soldiers in about 1690, shortly after the opening of the building in connection with the quality of the bread. I think they were severely disciplined as a result. And equally, the records show, for example, the concerns of people like the chaplain, whose worry was the stove in the, great, in the chapel, which was staining the ceiling. Would a visitor approach the Royal Hospital and what would he see when he arrived? Well, a visitor approaching from Houston Station coming up John's Road would come to the, the what's called the East Gate of uh, the Royal Hospital and he'll enter there and go through this uh, the, the tree-lined drive up to it and he'll get his first glimpse of the Royal Hospital. Now what I'd suggest to stop there for a moment because that's the elevation that shows the influence of Les Invalides. Now, as you can see outside of the building itself, um, there are all these hints of the French connection in terms of the style of the building, uh, notably the lofty slated roofs and the small dormers and the very fine and elegant carved stonework. All this speaks of France. And so also it is the scale of the building, which is immense, and it's always a great surprise to people when they see this great building locked away in a rather quiet, sheltered part of Dublin. 
the years, the Office of Public Works had carried out maintenance work on the building. But despite this, by the time the restoration began, the structure was not in good condition. Hubert Rinn, a bricklayer, spoke to me about restoring the windows. Well, from the windowsills up, the jams each side of them, and the, they were all rotten, and we had to take them back down and rebuild them up again into the same thing. And then we got to the heads of the windows, we had to put lintels on them, and uh, the rest of them had to be tied in and stitched in. There was only oak beams over them before we took out the uh, things, and then the putting new concrete lintels over them to, to carry the weight of the building from that on up to the second storey. And the same had to be done on the second storey and the window sills went in and the piers had to be built again onto the roof and then it had to be all put up to the top of it mm -hmm. to be where the stone came in for the form the water channel to carry the water off the roof. And were all the windows in, in bad condition? Did they all have to be treated? Yes, they were all in bad condition. Some of them very bad, worse than others. They all had to be redone. As a lot of the bricks was rotten that was in it, they were old type bricks. And so did you put new bricks in? We put new bricks on, on all the windows each side, up along, about 14 inches wide, be 18 inches to carry the, the weight of the existing roof overhead. The plaster work also needed a lot of attention. You notice there's a lot of plaster in the building, and this was both externally and inside. Externally we used an old mix of lime, using a lot of lime plaster with grated pebbles and gravel, and used in a particular fashion rather to simulate what was uh, the old uh, wavy form of plaster in those days. So it was asking the uh, plasters of today to do something a little bit unusual and out of the ordinary for them, and I think they probably enjoyed that, and they certainly gave us a very good job. Pat Mitchell was one of the plasterers who worked in the Royal Hospital. He told me about the problems he faced on the windows. Well, um, over the windows here, as you can see, it's, um, we call it the, the string line. Uh, when we come in here, it, uh, it was in bad condition. We had to uh, clean it off, and uh, then we had to proceed to uh, run and fix it and uh, square it, and then after that we had to keep dabbing it out to bring it out. It's not uh, what you call ordinary plastering to. Very, it's very uh, tedious work. And, and what condition was it in? Uh, oh, it was uh, a very bad condition, and we had to come along and uh, run our mould along the actual face of the of the string line, and then we come to the the bits in between, where it was uh, we had to um, do it simply freehand. That's yeah. the, the bits of moulding now between the, the two windows. Yeah, there were the members there between the two windows and the mm -hmm. corners are there. They actually had to do, be done by freehand, with, uh, which takes um, a very long time and you need well, a lot of patience. Was it a difficult job? Uh, well, it, uh, you've heard the pin on what you call difficulty. It's, it's, um, it's just either you can do it or you can't do it. It's one of those jobs. No, it's not mm -hmm. a an ordinary plastering job as such. Yeah. yeah it was just a uh, uh, patient, I'd say, was the biggest uh, thing you needed for. It took me actually two years for, to run that uh, string line. So did you do the entire string line right around the building? Uh, yes. Both inside and out? Inside and outside, yeah. And it took me, well, maybe maybe over two years, no, give or take a few weeks, but it was uh, two years then was uh, on that particular type of work which uh, you'll never come across again, I'd imagine. Did you enjoy it? 
Uh, well, uh, most times, uh, times it was um, it was a hassle to say the least. But uh, it was a challenge, and then it come a bigger challenge to actually finish the job. But we got it done. Another major task involved, as I mentioned, the stonework. Uh, this was interesting, or at least disappointing, in the sense that it was itself a repair job dating from the early 1800s. Francis Johnston, the celebrated architect who was known for the general post office in Dublin, and Johnston was called in to do a major repair job in about 1806, and he in turn had replaced much of the stone, and we found that atmospheric pollution had very severely damaged it. The task involved, again, taking down every stone, photographing, labelling, drawing, sending to the quarry, which is a reversal, really, of the normal method of getting stone from quarries. In this case, we were sending them back. Larry Sharp of Stone Developments in Enniskerry takes up the story. Our brief on the project was to examine all of the old stonework taken down from the building and to decide how much of this stonework could in fact be reused. Once this had been decided, the suitable stones were loaded onto our trucks and removed to our quarries at Enniskerry mm -hmm. for cutting back and redressing to leave the stonework suitable for reuse in conjunction with the new stonework which would be also prepared at our quarries. Was working on these uh, cornices a difficult job for the stonemasons? Yes, insofar as that the working of the contract brought out the best of the traditional skills of the stonemason in that the new stonework had in fact to be worked in every detail to match the profiles and mouldings of the existing stonework. The visitor would enter the courtyard of the Royal Hospital through the large oak door in the southern wing of the building. Before he goes in, he should look over the door because there is one of the tympanum. Now, a tympanum is a, a piece of timber, semicircular, carved over a doorway. Mm -hmm. And there are four beautiful ones in Kilmainham, the uh, north and south, that's the one he's looking at, and the one on the very far uh, entrance door. Both of those have heads and garlands, and they're beautifully carved, and it was great work to clear away all the old paintwork on those and get down to the basic and uh, they're in beautiful condition. And then on the east-west, the other two entrances, uh, there are uh, trophies, armorial trophies, mm -hmm. carved, beautifully done too. Now he'll enter that door and he'll come into the great quadrangle. This is where the pensioners strolled around and you've got the arcaded effect, the right around three sides. Uh, however, you continue across the quadrangle and then facing you, is uh, the main wing. This will be the one that will interest the public most, I think, because straight ahead of you is the entrance into the Great Hall. On the left is the Master's Quarters, and on the right is the Chapel. These are the three great uh, elements in the, the design. 
In a book on the Royal Hospital, Childers and Stuart, two military historians, describe the Great Hall as follows. Merely to see the Great Hall will well repay the trouble of a visit to the hospital. This noble apartment is 100 feet in length, 50 in breadth. The upper part of the walls is decorated with 22 portraits of sovereigns and Irish statesmen, among which are included King Charles II, Queen Anne, James, Duke of Ormond, and Archbishop Marsh of Dublin. The fine old fireplace at the West End perhaps deserves a mention as a spot of supreme interest to the old men. Here through the winter or on wet days they enjoy their well-earned ease with drafts, newspapers, exchange of reminiscences or the settlement of the nation's foreign and domestic policy. Well, we're now, as you see, in the Great Hall and this was the soldiers' dining hall. As you can see, it's an immense space and it's also pretty formal looking. Looking down are the 20 enormous paintings of the various governors and monarchs of the period. For example, we see up there Charles II, and over here the Duke of Ormond, and behind the Archbishop Marsh. These walls, you asked about colour, these walls are painted deliberately a stone colour. They're finely panelled, they're all a 17th century work. They're very rare and unusual. Um, we suspect that the original colour might have been brown to simulate oak. In fact, these panels are just pine, but we thought that they might perhaps have been either marbled or stained in some other way. But after about the 25th layer, it was discovered that the original colour was really to simulate a stone colour. However, restoring the panels to their original condition required a lot of patient work. Paddy Sullivan, a carpenter for 30 years, takes up the story. What I was told was to try and retain as much of the old stuff as, as, as possible. Try and work in even what I'd be repairing, try and get bits of old moulding off of uh, panels that wouldn't be going back. And you try and use them in, in the repairs. What sort of condition were they in for 300-year-old panels? They were pretty good, mind you. They were pretty good. Um, I thought that they'd be worse. But... Um, when they were stripped and cleaned, you'd be surprised how, how, good, how good they were. When you came across damage to a panel, how did you cope with it? How, what exactly did you do? Well, we'll take, for instance, that panel there now, right in front of us. Usually, maybe the moulding might be damaged down along here. Matter of fact, you, you may see the little line there where, where, the, where the new stuff has been mitered into it. Yes. Well, we cut out, cut out that. Yeah. And um, cut off, off here and um, get that portion of the moulding off of another panel that wouldn't be used anywhere. Yes. And you grafted it into that, glue, glue them back, and mm -hmm. um, until you were perfectly happy like this. It was in pretty good shape going back again, and that mm -hmm. everything seemed to look to be okay. Was there a lot of, of finishing work, of sanding work? There was an amount of it, there was indeed. We had, um, we had a sander actually that we were able to sand. The, um, in the middle of the panel where the planks are. Yes. But for the mauling itself, I, 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 I'm afraid it was a case of plenty elbow grease. What sort of wood was on? What, what are the original panels made of? Yellow pine. And mm. the, the mauling is red deal. And they lasted? They time. lasted that, that length of time. They did indeed. And uh, they, looked, they, were in, they were in fairly good shape like, for the, over that length, um, so many years. Uh, one actually, that, that's that panel over, up, overhead there. As you can see, like it's, it's, it's a curved panel. Yes. And, uh, and I always remember we, were, we ran shots of, of some of the curved moulding. 
And I always mm. remember taking a piece of that for about 18 inches long and, and doing it by hand. That meant chiselling out as much of it as I could with, with the chisel and mallet and then plenty of sandpaper again until we got back into that shape of, of the original. Well, we're just standing by the northern entrance. You've just opened the doors. Can you tell me what condition these two main doors were in? Bad. <laughs> Very bad, actually. Um, those uh, doors, entrance to the gate hall, the, from the north wing and, and um, courtyard, they were the oak doors. And um, when I saw them first, anyway, I, I said to myself that they were only fit to be put in a fire. But they were, um, they were very bad. Well, it, it meant, well, as you can see now, they look fairly good. But it meant um, making up a portion of the door. Now, all the bottom part of that was gone. The bottom rail, portion of the, of the two sides of the, of the styles were, were gone, mm -hmm. plus that uh, panel. And uh, what it meant was making up the um, mortise and tenon in, um, into each other, and at the same time, grafted in, into the old wood, into the old styles, uh, and make up the panel and put it, you had to put it all in together. The panel actually had to go in first and then fix in the, the two sides, which had been made up previous. But um, they were in fair, very bad condition when, when, I saw, when we got them first. How difficult a job is it to graft the old and the new wood together? Not too bad, mind you, not too bad, because we had it the same thickness as the old wood. They're about um, two and a half inches in thick thickness. And um, the new stuff that we got out for the repair, and we got the same thickness, so they have worked out fairly well, like with the sanding machine, and we got it down fairly good. also has a magnificent oak floor. We were very fortunate in finding this oak floor. We didn't know it existed in the beginning of the job. And it was not until we had lifted all the various removable covers, including an old oak floor that had been put down for some sort of an important ball that was held in the 1860s. We know this from the, the records. And we used the oak flooring from the, the hall inside in the master's dining room. But the great find was this oak floor. Alan Richardson, contract manager with SISKS, takes up the story. Well, when we stripped uh, the floor out, we found out there's at least 90% of the oak we uh, removed was reusable. And we managed to uh, put it through our own woodworking machines and re-thickness it. But the amazing thing was we came across boards, some up to 46 feet in length, 7 by inch and a quarter, which were in perfect condition. And... 300 years ago, the, you know, the only way they must have been cut, cut out by hand. And how would that have been done? Uh, well, the only way thing I can think of is the old-fashioned way was a, a double-handed uh, cross-cut saw, a rip saw, where you excavate a pit and you have one man below and one man on top. And they both operate the same saw. But it's very well matched. How did you get the modern timber to match it so well? Well, I say, fortunately enough, we... Uh, we thought we were going to have a problem getting a finish on all the floors. And there's an old established Dublin firm, uh, Dwyer and Daly. Mm -hmm. um, we got Tony Dwyer's help, and uh, you can see his finished results speaks for itself, you know. Mm -hmm. 
The entrance to the chapel is at the eastern end of the Great Hall. The chapel, which is suffused with warm light from 19th century stained glass windows, contains some of the most remarkable craftwork in the entire building. Just entered the lobby that before the chapel off the Great Hall, and we're walking down an old stone flag floor through this beautiful wrought iron gate, which was uh, worked about 18, 1750. And we're inside, in uh, as it has been described by Professor Cruikshank of Trinity College as one of the finest interiors in Ireland. It's a lofty and uh, magnificent place full of color and uh, extremely impressive and most particularly from its for its fine wood carving um, our eye immediately is drawn to the uh, altar which is surrounded by oak irish oak carving which was done by a uh, french huguenot by the name of tabary it's contemporary work 1684 and he also designed that very famous altar table Eddie McGuinness was the carpenter who restored the altar rails in the chapel. Well, uh, on the chapel, the altar rails had to be taken out because the floor was in a bad condition. And we had to put back the altar rails. We had a, a lot of patching by hand. Mm -hmm. like, uh, the banisters themselves were in good conditions, but there was a lot of fine material such as this carbon. Yes. And we had a lot of patching mm -hmm. with and that. How, and how was that done? It all had to be done by hand. Was it a very time-consuming job? It was a time-consuming job. It's very seldom you get a chance of this kind of work. And the day had passed very quick. You enjoy it. And you always had a couple of young fellas, apprentices with you, and they enjoyed it. From that point of view, from, they have something to bring along with them for the rest of life. The chapel is also noted for its very fine Baroque ceiling. From here, looking up at the ceiling, um, you have the impression that it's mere classical motifs and details. But in fact, when we were on the scaffold within a few feet of it, uh, the whole composition uh, is of vegetables and fruit. Uh, for example, the large pumpkins and carrots of at least four feet long. But the whole thing makes up a splendid assembly. And it also has quite a bizarre history because, in fact, we're not looking at the original work in terms of its material. Uh, the, this ceiling had to be taken down for structural reasons in about 1900. And we read in the records quite an interesting uh, account of the controversy that surrounded this. Uh, the architect uh, in charge of the project gave in a report to the effect that I don't think he particularly cared for the, this ceiling, and he, he, his opinion was that it should be replaced by a very simple version. However, um, it's our good fortune that the governors of the time insisted that it be reproduced exactly in replica, which must have been a formidable task, and which incidentally was carried out in papier-mâché.
Now the remainder of the wing, which is just as important as the master's quarters, it's a two-story section. And the interesting thing about it is that there are uh, two small rooms uh, at the hall and the landing, which are the original 17th century rooms. The panelling, doors, fireplaces are the original, and they're very rare examples of the work of that time. Uh, the style of the period uh, will require furnishing, which should be in that 17th century uh, period, and uh, we're working on that. We, we have a tremendous furniture branch here that provides furniture, and we'll be looking for ideal pieces for this. But the interesting thing about the master's quarters, when you come down to the, the ground level, uh, you find there the area has been remodeled by Francis Johnson in uh, 19th century work. Uh, he increased the size of the, of the dining room. And uh, it, it's, uh, it's very unusual to find uh, a series of centuries work living so closely together and providing uh, a unity. Now to us, in this generation, we accept the variation in styles mm -hmm. between uh, particularly door, things like door treatments, window treatments, the uh, decoration internally. Mm -hmm. John Costello has followed exactly the, the decoration that would have been used at that time for each of the differing mm -hmm. centuries, uh, so that you're getting a different feeling about them. Now, to us in this generation, we probably don't see the break, but in Francis Johnson's time, he may have had students walking up and down outside with placards saying, you know, don't <laughs> let this bad loose. <laughs> but uh, he managed to do it, and it's mm. totally acceptable now, and mm. it's a fascinating trip to go through that area yeah. uh, between the two floors. eye-catching features of the Royal Hospital is the steeple in the north wing. It contains a sundial and a turret clock, both of which were restored by Julian Cosby. I think the, the greatest interest is putting back into life something which has, which is no longer working, but the, also the enjoyment is putting back to life something which someone at some stage took tremendous pride in, and it's this pride that you feel when you're restoring clock and putting it back to life. Most, most people judge clocks by what they see, and that's the dial. But um, some of the earlier clocks, things like the levers that's behind the dial, were most beautifully chased out and um, formed into curves and things, which had nothing to do with the operation of the clock, but it's entirely the pride that the person had in making the clock. How long altogether did the job take? When, when did you start working on the clock? Uh, I started the clock in July. I, I took the clock, I took the, dismantled the clock and brought it down to the workshop in July, but I wasn't able to get at the dials of the clock outside until the scaffolding went up. And it was October time before the scaffolding went up. Initially, uh, the dials, it was just a question of re repainting the dials and go leaving them. But when we got up there, uh, one of the major factors was, being October, it was the wrong time of the year to do go leafing outside. And when I chipped the, the paint off, the old paint off, I found that there was quite a lot of rust underneath the paint. 
And it became quite evident that it's not every day that you have scaffolding this high and one would have to make it do a proper job of it. This meant. So we decided to take the dials down. Um, and as the dials are six foot in diameter, they're made of cast iron, they're, they're in two sections, and each section weighs a hundred weight and a half. So it was no easy task getting, getting them down. All the hands, there are four dials to the clock, and all the hands were missing. So one, in, with restoration work, if one has to replace a part, one, one tries to, to make things in keeping with the period of the clock. So before I could make the new hands, I had to go around and see if I could find a design which was in keeping with what should be there. And I was fortunate enough to find a clock in the country of roughly the same period, about 1870. And uh, I copied from these the hands for Clemenum. However, missing parts weren't the only problems Julian Cosby faced. Uh, in this case, the belfry was exposed to the elements, which, which meant the pigeons could get up into the clock room. Consequently, the clock movement was covered in pigeon manure. This, together with compacted old grease and oil, meant that the, all the wheels had become um, contaminated with vertigree. Once you've done a preliminary clean, you're then in a position to inspect a little more closely the wear of the clock. In this case, uh, there were no cracked wheels, which is common in some clocks, uh, but the bearings were worn in one or two places, and these had to be replaced. Uh, the major part which was, which was damaged was the escapement. The escapement is the heart of the clock, and in this particular clock, it's, it's fitted with a gravity escapement, which was invented by Lord Grimthorpe and first used on the great clock at Westminster. The escapement had been rather had been welded up quite well, mind you, but it wasn't correct. And they had also had, had, had trouble with one of the arms bouncing, and you can see they've added an extra weight. Oh, yes. This I removed. Um, and when I, made, when I made the new escape wheel, mm -hmm. I took in account of this, and um, so far seems to be working very satisfactorily without the weight. How long will it last now, do you think? <laughs> That's a problem which it's, you, can't, you cannot answer because you're restoring, you're not making, you're restoring what is there. I'm sure if some the parts of the clock are still their original age, so you can't say what might happen tomorrow, but hopefully it's in as good a condition as it was when it was first put up. Restoration work on the hospital was finished last year, exactly 300 years after the building was first completed. Before he left the site, I asked Paddy Sullivan what his feelings were now that the job was done. Oh, I think uh, one of great achievements. I think I have that. Uh, it's kind of, I think it's very nice to go into, into the great hall or into the church and uh, look at all the panelling and the doors and everything and. Just say to yourself that you helped a little bit in the restoration of it, you know, like uh, there was many other fine tradesmen that worked here, you know, like, and uh, I suppose I just happened to be one, one but um, I think um, it, was a, it was a lovely job, it's a beautiful job. How did working in the Royal Hospital differ from the normal work that you would be doing? 
Well, usually in office blocks you have, uh, you don't have as much timber work as what you had here in the Royal Hospital anyway. You were lucky if you had um, an architect around the door even, but here it was miles and miles of timber work. You know, um, it was timber work all the way, every day you came in, like it was, it was a case of having good, keeping the tools in good shape and you had plenty of timber to cut anyway. I must, I must say I, I really did enjoy working here in the, in the Royal Hospital. I expect the, uh, really our principal aim in the work from the architectural end was in some way to attempt and try to retain the, the character and feeling of this historic building. And essentially, of course, it, this was involved everybody. It was a very large team job and with very good contractors. And I, I'd really feel, that to just sum it up, it was this, this job, for what it's worth, it was really the the work of very many hands indeed, both from the past and today. The building has now been handed back to the state and plans are underway to open it to the public and to turn it into a major centre of culture and the arts. Noel Deschenu has a personal view, however, of how the story of the Royal Hospital might be brought to life for the public. Uh, I have a personal bias myself uh, that I, I fondly think of it. Uh, and it's only because of having seen it in uh, Les Invalides in Paris that if you take a summer's night, good weather, it's got to be good weather, unfortunately, with this idea, and uh, consider entering, the public entering the courtyard and seating around. I'd see it as people sitting down in darkness and before the thing starts, and you sit facing the main wing, that's with the chapel and the... Uh, the great hall and the and I'd see a light coming on in the chapel and maybe hymns being sung and the story starting from that and have it come to life in Saint Lumiere. Uh, one would hear the clatter of hooves across the cobbles and lights would come on at the entrance gates and at the call of uh, the sentry and then lights come on in the courtyard slowly as the uh, the arcade lights up and then particular rooms would light up and a, a small drama take place of what took place in that room and uh, I think this could suddenly bring to uh, light the imagination of everyone of what did happen in Kilmainham and what the history of Dublin what effect it had on Kilmainham and uh, that's the way I'd see the building coming to life for the public.